Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and let's go to chapter 4. We want to pick up our study in verse 1, and Lord willing, take it up to verse 16. But we're looking at walking in God's love. Now, let me encourage you with some exhortation that Paul brings forth, just a little introduction. This exhortation is from Paul as he's speaking through the Holy Spirit for the church there at Ephesus. But what about us today? Paul's going to be speaking about uh, to walk as becomes our Christian profession or our Christian call. Walking identifies with our manner of life, the way Christian life uh, should be on a daily basis. Sometimes in the church we have this concept that, you know, walking with Christ is Sunday morning because this is when I come to church. Or if I frequent church even on a Sunday night or a Wednesday but it seems that we, you know, have this habit of taking off the Christian hat and putting back on the secular hat as we leave the sanctuary. But the Bible teaches us that I'm a Christian uh, 24-7. It's easy to be uh, a Christian here this morning as we gather, as we meet, as we worship God together, as uh, we're told to turn around and greet somebody and we say, brother, sister, we love you. And, and you know, we know all the spiritual jargon. We know the Christianese, as they say. But what about tomorrow? What about at work? What about at school? What about at play? What about at home? Am I a Christian? Now remember, the best translation for the word Christian is to be Christ-likeness. Do I represent Christ to those that are around me? And so Paul is going to be speaking about this. Our walking in Christ's love. The word walking, again, my manner of life, every day, church. You see, before I came to Christ, Sunday morning was my Christian walk. Before I came to Christ, many of you identify with this, Easter Sunday morning or Christmas Day. Those of us that came from, you know, Catholicism or our holy days of obligation. But what about the rest of the year? What about that evening? Am I truly walking in Christ? And Paul's going to be using even himself as an example. Now, Paul was a prisoner in Rome, writing to the church at Ephesus. But he also declared that he was a prisoner of Christ, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't like the terminology slave. In our history, we understand slavery was part of our United States of America, especially the southern areas. And so slavery has that, you know, connotation, the bad taste in our mind, in our hearts. But bottom line, I was a slave to sin, whatever the sin nature was. But I come to Christ now, as Paul says, I now a prisoner of Jesus Christ by choice, by choice. Now, physically, he was in a prison there in Rome. But Paul was this prisoner of Christ, sold out for the kingdom of God. And so he speaks to the church at Ephesus concerning this daily walk in Christ's love. And I can't do it without Christ's love. My walk will just not make it. Neither will yours. And so notice as he begins here in Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, and I love this word here. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
And listen to Paul's heart as he begins to uh, encourage with love and compassion the church at Ephesus. Paul's heart, as one who is a bondservant of Jesus Christ by choice, I beseech you. Now, the word beseech, when we look at it in the Greek, it has such a deeper meaning. Paul is saying, I beseech you or I invite you. I exhort you, but I like my favorite translation of the Greek word here. Paul is saying, I beg you. And I like to add to that. I beg you by the mercies of God. Walk worthily or appropriately of the calling. Now, if you have a King James, he uses the word vocation with which you are called. The key that Paul is speaking here, that you personally are named for this call. He's speaking about the call to salvation and not the call to, you know, working in the ministry. But your call to salvation, is it intact? Here's what Paul is saying in the Greek. Walk straight in the call to salvation that God has personally called you by name. Now this morning I want you to place your own name there. God has personally called me, Bob. God has personally called you. Insert your name there. God has called Patty. God has called Ray. He has called Angie. He has called Ralph. He has called you to salvation. The born-again experience. My walking in Christ is my true manner of life. As a Christian, how I should be as I walk with him. How should I be with the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Paul is speaking about this call to salvation. And notice, how do I walk in this call? He describes it in verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And the word is agapeo love, divine love. So Paul continues to encourage this walk, this manner of life. In all lowliness. Better translation there, in all humility. And also to walk in all gentleness, and a better translation there, is in all meekness. But meekness also speaks of humility. We need to let God, allow God, to be first in my life, to be first in your life. I need to learn to take the second position. You see, like it or not, I like to be my own person. Like it or not, you like to be your own person. Now, husbands, as the prophet, priest, and king of the home, we have a responsibility. And, you know, sometimes we walk around as King Kong, and, you know, uh, you do what I say. But you know what? God has to be first. God needs to be first. You see, that's why I got in such a mess. That's why I needed salvation. That's why I came to Christ, because I was governing my own life. We need to learn uh, to trust God. We need to learn to put God first. There's a beautiful passage of scripture, if you're taking notes. In John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Beloved writes uh, these words of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had a following. But John was the heralder, remember? John was the one that was uh, sounding the alarm because Jesus is the Son of God. And remember, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But John had a strong following. 
But listen to these words in John 3, verse 30. I never forgot this. He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. I need to learn uh, by humility uh, to take that second position. I need to be careful. The Bible teaches us that we're to walk in, in true humility. True humility is being the lower one. Now, be careful with the word humility because back in the times of the Puritans, the Puritans brought forth this uh, analogy of this is, you know, humility. And, and it just seemed that the darker the garb that you wore, the more you folded your hands, the more you put your head down. And they wouldn't smile. And that was supposed to be humility. Well, I don't describe that as humility. I would describe it as pain. Man, I have the joy of the Lord. You have the joy of the Lord. Let the people see the joy of the Lord. You know, in all reality, I was thinking about it. If I would have seen Puritans in my time, I want to be like you. And you know, that's the joy when you see a Christian that loves the Lord. You want to be more like them. And so the word Christian brings us to, to that place of a, a, a small Christ, in a sense. You're a little Christ. You're not Christ. We know that. But you're a little Christ. You represent Christ. Do they see Christ? Or do they see, again, that natural man? And so Paul speaks of this manner of life. Do it with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love. I should have compassion and care for my fellow man. I should have compassion and care for my brother, my sister in Christ. And then he goes on to verse 3, endeavoring, listen, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to keep this bond of peace in unity. The word unity speaks of oneness in Christ. To endeavor, now this is a, a very strong word again in the Greek. To endeavor means to be diligent in that walk, in that unity. Uh, to be uh, in the place even of labor. In other words, a work. But another translation is to study uh, to be in this unity for Christ and with Christ. That's why we come to church. That's why we come to Bible study, to learn. That's why we equip ourselves, and we're going to see that in later verses. Now, how do I do this but by the power of the Holy Spirit in bond? He's in control of my life, and he brings forth this peace. Now, the word peace here is very strong. You see, in the world, we look for peace. In the world, the peace is temporal. The peace is plastic. But the peace that Jesus gives us is this rest, this quietness. That's the translation. My rest in Christ, my peace in Christ, my quietness in Christ. And this comes through the born-again experience. This comes as the Holy Spirit leads and guides me into all truth. Now listen to this, in the midst of all my trials, in the midst of all my hardships, all my pain, I am to walk in God's love. Now he goes on into verse 4, we're going to develop it further. And he speaks of this walking in Christ, he speaks of the church, the body of Christ, we're one, we're not many different churches, be careful with that. 
There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling. Now, Paul is saying a lot here, but we're all one body of Christ. The true church, the body of Christ. We have the same spirit. We have all been called to the same glorious future, which is heaven. We all have this same invitation. We all have the same salvation. I'm not more saved than you. You're not more saved than I am. God has called us one body. Then I have to ask this question. I put it in my notes. Then why do we have so many denominations? Why do we have so many non-denominations? Why do we have so many independent churches? It's a good question. Because it was never meant to be. And I can answer it this way. It was not God's intention, but to have one body in Christ. That was it. Man in his insecurities. Man in his angers. Man in his pride. Man in his walk uh, out of one church and then to start another church. It's nothing new. In the years that we've been here, we've had people that have gotten upset with me, gotten upset with the leadership, gotten upset with the, uh, the church, and then they move on. And then before you know it, they start another work. That's not what God directed. I'm amazed. You look in the phone directory. you got First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist, Fourth Baptist. Where did it start? Started with the First Baptist Church. Should not be. And it's only amazing to me that God allows it. We're one body, one body of Christ. When you get to heaven, please don't get up there and go, uh, where's the Calvary Chapel site? Because there's not going to be a Calvary Chapel site. I used an analogy to explain this years ago, and I'm going to use it again. Just a quick story. It's humorous, but it, it makes a point. There was a man that was marooned in an island by himself, marooned for about 10 years. But on that island, he had plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of shelter. But in his boredom, the man had, you know, trees and uh, plants and wood and such. So he starts to build a city, making them out of little huts. He's trying to just make himself comfortable so he won't go crazy. And so to the amazement of the captain of the ship and the crew, when they landed on the island, and they realized that he had everything there, the water, the food, the shelter, and they noticed that it was like a miniature city. The man had even directed a road. And basically, he had a hospital, he had a school, he had a post office, and the list goes on. This was for himself, because imagine trying to keep the mind going. But up in the top of the hill, there was two buildings. And each one had a cross. And so as they investigated, they said, hey, you have two churches. And he goes, oh, yeah, a couple of years ago we had a division. <laughs> and that is so true. So true. <laughs> There's one man on the island. There's two churches. <laughs> but that's the fickleness of the heart of man. Notice verse 4 again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling. And I'll tell you what, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. Notice now, verse 5. 
And he goes on. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. The simplicity of this verse. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. There is only one God. The Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one faith. In fact, Jesus said he's the author and finisher of faith. Now, listen to this. He says there's one baptism. He's not speaking of water baptism here. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when we are born again of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God dispenses his spirit. Now, we understand that there is the outpouring of the upon experience And that's what we call the overflowing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit found in the book of Acts in chapter 2. But we know that when we come to Christ, that his spirit comes within me. And so Paul is saying one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Be careful when we have two or three lords, two or three uh, faiths, and two or three baptisms. There's one. And he goes on. Look at uh, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. Somebody said that Paul was from the south. I don't know. But listen to verse 6, the commentary here. God controls all the circumstances of our lives. Listen to that again. No matter what I go through, no matter what you go through, if I'm Christian, you're Christian. If I'm born again of the Holy Spirit, God controls all the circumstances of our lives. That's a hard statement to to grasp. Now listen. When I complain, when you complain, when we complain about our situation, our circumstances, we are actually murmuring against God. You see, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, obviously certain things happen to us. I mean, I don't like when I hear somebody has cancer. I don't like when I hear somebody's been in an automobile accident. I don't like when I hear, but yet God allows these things. Now, on your own to proof text this, go home tonight and study the book of Job chapters 1 and 2. Our dear brother Job, I've been told by uh, some pastors, well, Job didn't have enough faith. The Bible says Job had everything, and then Job lost everything. In fact, Job's wife came to him and said, look at you, you're a mess. Because Job was in a heap of ashes, and he took sackcloth and ashes, and he had boils, and he, he took pottery, and he was just scraping himself. And his wife says, you're miserable. Curse the God that you serve. You remember Job's statement? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so next time I go through what I'm going through. Now sometimes I bring it on with my own flesh nature. But I see how God allows things in my life. God allows things in your life. That first service we had that our gentleman that's part of our church, Steve. We've been praying for him. I mean, open back surgery twice. Didn't take the first time. Watching the man just, I mean, he's 32 years old, strong as an ox, and he can't sit down. And to see him walk in this morning, and he's giving God the glory, the pain. We've all seen Christians years back just 
five, six years ago, I seen my dad go through his pain, finally to succumb to death. My father-in-law went through his pain, finally succumbed to death. We're not exempt. We're not exempt. We've had ladies in our church with, with cancer here, and God's gone before them. And we've seen some taken home. We've seen some healed. But God is in control of my life. God is in control of your life. But we so easily can murmur and complain. And so this position of walking in God's love, it's not easy. But by the strength of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, I can sustain. I can sustain. And I give God the glory. Now we come to this second section, uh, verses 7 through 16. Paul speaks about spiritual gifts. As I walk in God's love, as I walk in this manner of life, in my Christianity, spiritual gifts are dispensed to teach me how to walk. Spiritual gifts are given that I might teach others. And that's the beauty of it. Now, bottom line, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. But the spiritual gifts that are there for me, as I walk in God's love. So, in other words, I'm not alone. Or I ask the question, well, how do I do it? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. And so we begin here. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace of God that was dispensed to me, dispensed to you, is the gift of God. This answers verse 6. The grace of God is sufficient for me, for you, no matter what we have done or what has been done to me or to you. That's not fair. That's my response. That's not fair. Just recently, Mary and I... Went out to Southern California. We went for the, the conference. Most of you know that. And then, you know, we took our van, and it broke while we were here. And I said, praise God. I, I, I enjoy when it breaks here because then we can take care of it. We know the mechanics and such. But it was costly. And I said, thank you, Lord. It's over with. Well, we get to Southern California. It breaks again. Oh, something different. But it breaks again. And you, why me, Lord? And I get that response. I don't know if you guys get it. Why not you? This should happen to Pastor Jeff, not to me. But that's how we are. That's our nature. You know that the Bible says that God chips away. Listen, he chips away the old man. He chips away the old woman. God takes us through trials that he might strengthen our walk. God strengthens our walk through the trials. He builds patience, James tells us. He builds endurance. He builds stamina. And another translation in James chapter 1, count it all joy when you go through various trials. He's building character in my life. Now, after 28 years, I respond to God, I have enough character. But yet he brings the trials. And it's obvious that I'm not done yet. And so to each one of us is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace of God, unmerited favor. I deserve judgment, but it's sufficient for me. Now, let me give you a quick story. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, the great apostle, he's going through a heavy trial. Paul is struggling with this thorn in the flesh. 
Some say it was like a pain in the neck for Paul. The Bible says it was Satan buffeted him, like pounding on him. Some believe that this thorn in the flesh was an eye infirmity, some type of a disease. But we're told that Paul goes to the Lord three times in prayer, in agonizing in prayer. And God responds to Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee. I've had the Lord say that to my heart. I don't like it. Let me read to you the verse. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's thorn in the flesh. And church, after that, that God responds to his prayer three times, my grace is sufficient. There's no more mention of the trial. There's no more mention of Paul praying, Lord, uh, what about this problem? And I'm not telling you to stop after you've prayed three times. But sometimes God's teaching us. God's taking us through it. And then I like what Paul says here. He says, I, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he says, uh, for my strength is made perfect or complete in weakness. There's another portion where Paul and Silas had been beaten already. And the Philippian jailer. And Paul says, these are but light afflictions. I say, Paul, don't write things like that because then I got to read them. And then I got to apply them to my life. And then him and Silas are strung up there in, you know, the dungeon. They had already been beaten. And the audacity of these two men to sing praises unto God at midnight. I'm not singing praises in my trial. Lord, this is not fair. And that's our nature. And God responds, my grace is sufficient for thee. So I walk in Christ's love, but it's not easy. But I can't do it without the crutch. You say, well, what's that crutch? The crutch is Jesus Christ. The crutch is uh, the leading of his Holy Spirit. These are things that God has given to me, given to you. I cannot make it without his word. And many times on a daily basis, not just Sunday morning, not just Sunday night or Wednesday. I need Christ on a daily basis. Notice verse 8. He goes on now. Therefore, he says, and he's going to quote out of Psalm 68, verse 18. The reference is also uh, to Luke chapter 16. Jesus ascends uh, there into Hades. That's a whole other teaching. He says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, he's talking about the gift of salvation. Jesus preached to those in hell, in Hades, in Sheol, that he is the Messiah, that he, would, that he died and he would rise again on the third day. Now, in Luke chapter 16, you see the whole concept. Everybody that died before Jesus resurrected, everybody went to Sheol. Everybody went to the center of the earth. There was a great compartment that separated, a great gulf fixed. And on one side, you had hell or Hades. On the other side, you had paradise or Abraham's bosom. And when Jesus went down and he preached to those in captivity, everybody heard. But when Jesus ascends or resurrects those that were with him, according to uh, Matthew chapter 27 and 28, you see that the graves were open. 
and they resurrected with Christ. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been in Jerusalem at that time. The graves are open, and hey, is that Uncle Levi walking over there? Down Jerusalem Street? Didn't he die 10 years ago? He's resurrected now. That is called the first resurrection. Now he goes on to this whole concept. Look at verse 9 now. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, we already described that he went down to Sheol. But a different uh, analogy here. He ascended. Christ first came down to the lowly world in which we live. Jesus came down, took on the position of man. He became one of us. It's called his incarnation. And he died on the cross to give us life, life eternal. This is the Lord that we serve. Listen to this verse in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is our Messiah. This is our anointed one. This is the Mashiach that they were waiting for, that the Old Testament prophecies had declared. I don't know about you, but that baffles the mind that Jesus would come and die for the sins of mankind. Can you understand now the concept when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Bible says that he prays three times, take this cup of death. He didn't want to die. Jesus was all son of God, all savior of the world. At the same time, he was all man. He identified with us. The pain, the agony on the cross, he would feel greatly. And so he goes on. Look at verse 10 now. He who descended is also the one uh, who ascended from above all the heaven that he might fulfill, basically, all things. In other words, Jesus died, rose again on the third day uh, to give us life, life eternal, to fulfill all things. All the prophecies that were written about the Messiah that would die. He would die in that hill called Mount Moriah. The hill of Golgotha. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, let me read that to you. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, If then you were raised with Christ, he's speaking about us, seek those things which are above where Christ is, and listen to this beautiful statement, sitting at the right hand of God. Now we could just leave that there. And I'm fine with it. So are you. Well, that's Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God. But what is he doing there? We find that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul writes, Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even, and here's the answer, at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for me? Oh. Again, that baffles the mind that Jesus sits at the right hand of, of the throne of God and he makes intercession for you. He makes intercession for me. You see, when I blow it, and I do, when you blow it and you do, Jesus is praying for you. Father, he says, he's one of mine. He's covered by the blood of the lamb. She's one of mine. She's covered by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, the enemy wants to wipe you out. 
The enemy wants to say, you blew it, uh, you're, you're dead, you're gone, you're, you know, you're a crispy critter. But God says, I love you. You know what baffles the mind that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says he died for me. 2,000 years ago, I, I wasn't even a plan in my parents' mind, and you know that. Same with you. But God was already dying, sending his son for you. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And that he prays for me. That he prays for you. Be careful with that concept. Well, I don't pray to Jesus because he doesn't have enough time. He's got plenty of time. Seek him. Knock on his heart. Don't run from God. Run to God. And so in verse 11 now, let me just set this portion up. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he gives us now gifts. He gives us gifts to the church. Now, I have the gift of salvation. But now he dispenses gifts. And we're going to see he, he, he gives apostles and he, and he gives prophets and he gives evangelists and he gives pastor teachers. Why? To edify, to build up the body of Christ, to teach us. And that's the beauty of it all. That he would send us teachers. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is my teacher. The Holy Spirit is my guide, my director. All I have to do is listen. That's why we go through the scriptures. Now, look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. This is the Lord Jesus. This is God Almighty. He's given to the church some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. Jesus gave gifts to the church. Now, I'm just going to break it down real quick. He's given apostles. We understand that. An apostle was a delegate, uh, a messenger, an ambassador. So one that represents Christ. He's also given prophets. A, a prophet in the Old Testament was one that foretelling of the events to come to future. But now that we have a complete scripture, the prophets today are foretelling of God's word. Simple. God gives evangelists. Listen to this gift. Evangelists are, are those that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the non-believer. To the non-believer. And then he gives pastor teachers. And this is the category that I stand. Now, I don't believe I could be a, a pastor without being a teacher. I believe it's synonymous to be a pastor teacher. And the translation here is that God gives shepherd instructors of God's word to the church. These are gifted men. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. The power came to them in Acts chapter 2. Uh, at Pentecost, it's still available to us. It's for the church, this great gift. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't use women. There's some beautiful women evangelists. There's some women that are great teachers. And so, you know, the list goes on. Now, an ambassador is a representative. In a sense, if you're a Christian, we're all ambassadors. Now turn with me to a passage. I want you to read this. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 uh, through 4. Now I chose this because we understand Paul the Apostle. Before that, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a very learned man. In fact, uh, Paul was considered, or Saul of Tarsus was, was considered a doctor of the law. Belonged to the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was a, a 
Pharisee of Pharisee. Uh, he was a Benjamite. Paul had all the credentials. He studied under Gamaliel, great man of God. Gamaliel was called the beauty of the law. And so Paul had the best. Then he comes to saving grace. And what we shared earlier, he must increase, I must decrease. But here now, what we're going to read, 1 Peter chapter 5, God's dealing with a, a simple fisherman. Because see, I could, you know, explain it off. Well, I don't want to be in ministry because I'm no Saul of Tarsus. I'm no doctor of the law. But then I look at Peter, and I see Peter with that size 12 sandal in his mouth. And I said, that's me. And don't laugh because that's you. We can identify with Peter. Peter was a simple fisherman, but listen to this. Peter was a Galilean. The Galilean speech was very well known, and it was a lower speech. And so when you were uh, described as a Galilean, they knew who you were. It was kind of the person that, you know, has street language, street talk. I was thinking about, you know, we don't have Southerners here, but when a Southerner comes in or you hear a Southerner talk, you all and all that stuff, you go, I know where you're from. It just fits. And so when Peter opened his mouth, remember uh, when he was in the courtyard and they were tr getting Jesus, they're going to try him, and he says, you're that Galilean. His speech gave him away. And so Peter was nothing but a simple fisherman. And God used him mightily after the book of Acts chapter 2. And so look at 1 Peter 5. Look at verse 1. And again, Peter exhorts the leaders were to shepherd the flock. Peter says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I am, I who am a fellow elder, a presbyteros, and a witness of the suffering of Christ. He says, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter was there in the ministry of Christ. And then he says to these other elders, which he says, I'm one of you guys, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Shepherd the flock of God. The word shepherd in the Greek is poimene, and it basically means, listen, tend to the sheep. Tend to them. Feed them. That was the encouragement, not to fleece the flock, not to beat the flock, but teach them, encourage them with the word of God. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as an overseer, not by constraint. In other words, not by force, but willingly. He says, not for dishonest gain, but do it eagerly to serve the Lord. If you have a King James, not with uh, in mind filthy lucre, in other words, personal gain. And the sad commentary, how many people are in ministry today for the financial gain? Well, if I'm articulate, if I'm tall and handsome, if I got everything going for me, I'll go to seminary for a couple of years, get a hold of a church and bring it up. I mean, I'm just going to preach 10, 20 minutes on a Sunday. I got all these programs going on and the money's coming in. Sad, but there's a lot of men, a lot of women like that, and it should not be. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 3, Nor as being lords over them, those entrusted to you, you will receive. And then he says, uh, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
being examples uh, to the flock. Years back in the early 1980s, there was a man by the name of Bob Mumford. He was operating out of Florida. Bob Mumford had started a doctrine, and it was called the Shepherding Doctrine. And it was a very harsh doctrine. Basically, the church could not do anything unless they got permission uh, from the elders of the church. And you had to have permission to get married, and you had to have permission who to get married to. You had to have permission to buy a house, buy a car, uh, start a business. And I'll tell you what, God forbid that I tell you who to get married to. God forbid that I tell you to go in business or don't go in business. You serve the same God. You go to the same Bible. You seek him. You seek him. And that doctrine was around. And uh, I'm afraid that there's some churches that still like to regulate in that sphere. Trying to tell people what to do. Man, we need to teach the word of God. Let the word of God tell you what to do. Not what Pastor Bob has to say. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, speaking of Christ, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. These gifts for the church are to serve God. And in that process, we serve in the church. And in that process, we serve others around us. I mean, before you come into this building on Sunday mornings, there's a lot of people that have been at work, even from last night, cleaning up, getting it ready. People doing the children's church. People doing the, the sound ministry, the worship ministry. People handing out, you know, Various materials, things that are done in the church. The work of the church. And so Peter's explaining it so beautifully. But now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, for the equipping. Now he goes into this whole area. We're called to salvation. We're given gifts, uh, gifted men, so that we can learn the oracles of God. And then he tells you the reason. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. And so here lies the purpose of these gifted men. For the equipping of of the saints, or better, for the complete furnishings of the saints. Which is the church. For the work or the toil. And when we speak about the toil in the ministry, it includes the sweat the labor, the tears, the work, and yet it's God's work. And even though we toil, even though we perspire in it, it's still God's church. One of the things I tell the the people here in our church, listen, uh, praise God, I thank you for your service. But when you need some time off, let me know. Let somebody else know. When I need time off, I let them know. I'll see you guys later. And then they say, are you coming back? I go, I don't know. But you understand what I'm saying? We all need time off. We all need a break from time to time. And let me tell you something. Our ministry is not that big. Imagine the huge ministries. Sometimes the pastors are going ragged. And so there's a time and a place. But the whole purpose is to make complete furnishings of the saints. 
for the toil of the ministry, the service of the church. And the purpose is to teach, disciple, to serve. The purpose is to edify, to build up the body of Christ. How do we build up the body of Christ? But by the word of God. The primary purpose of the church is to perfect saints or to complete and to mature saints in Christ. Take down this verse. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives us the great commission. Go and make disciples. Go and make students. Go and make learners. Baptize them. Teach them uh, to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I, I am always with you. The simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to go. We need to give it. And then he, he goes on to verse 13. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, uh, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to what Paul's declaring here. We understand that the church is one body of truth. I know People like to make many churches. But basically, the church is one body of truth. As we hold to this, we in turn are united to one another. I'm not more saved than you. You're not more saved than I am. I am not more filled with the Spirit. You're not more filled with the Spirit. We're the same in Christ. And so God has placed that in us. And then it says here, unto a perfect man, or unto a perfect woman, unto a, a complete or mature man, unto a complete or mature woman. Our desire should be uh, to come to the complete maturity in Christ Jesus, because Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We should have compassion one to another. We should have concern one for another. We gave you those names there in our bulletin, people that we've been praying for. And then we put that scripture verse in Galatians 6, 2, bear ye one another's burdens. And so I look at that and I look at the names. I know them. Some of you know most of them. But now if you've been coming, you understand, and we've been praying for them. Bear ye one another's burdens. And so listen to the word compassion. My heart goes out now. I have compassion for them. But understand the word compassion. It's a deep word when we speak about it in the Greek. The word compassion, actually, moms, dads, you'll understand this if we've had children. True compassion is when your daughter, your son is sickly, is ill, has a high fever. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Mom, you know you're cradling that child. It's 102 temperature, and you're crying out. And we've said this. Lord, take that infirmity from that child. Place it upon me. Give me their fever, Lord. Because I don't like when my child is hurting. They can't respond when they're two, three years old. They can't tell you where it hurts. And so as a mom, you cry out. That's true compassion. So I'm thinking of compassion in the same sense. Lord, give me their cancer. Do I say that? No. Lord, give me their infirmity. Do I say that? No. 
Lord, Paul has this thorn in the flesh. Give it to me. That's true compassion. Didn't Jesus show true compassion at the cross? And so we want to come to that place of completeness. I'm not complete. You're not complete. I'm, you know, advancing to completeness. I will not be complete until Christ comes because I still live in this flesh. So do you. I might be saved, but my flesh is not saved. Very important to see that. Look at verse 14. That we should no longer be children. Because we're being taught, because we're being equipped. Listen to what he says. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by the uh, trickery or the deception of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitfulness, deceitful plotting. And so one of my commentaries said this in verse 14. Strong sheep will not be led away from their shepherd. He's speaking about Jesus Christ as their shepherd. It's important that you learn the word of God. That's what we try to do here. I hope you don't come for a sermonette. I hope you, I hope you come for the teaching of God's word. Pastor Chuck, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, he taught us years ago. A strong church emphasizes teaching of the Word of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So the people of the church, the body of Christ, will have a strong foundation, listen, to discern between true and false doctrine. Thus the purpose of gifted men, gifted women, anointed by the Holy Spirit to teach, if this takes place in the believer's heart, then he or she will walk in unity in God's love. We have to be taught. Sermonettes are not going to hold you. You have to be taught the word of God because the enemy will come and he will deceive you. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament. We're in the book of Joshua. We just did chapter 9 this Wednesday. And if you know the story of, of Joshua chapter 9, a, a group of men called the Gibeonites, they come and they deceive Joshua. Joshua makes a covenant with them that he will not attack them. And Joshua saw the outside appearance of the Gibeonites. They came only from a few days' journey from there, but they said they were from a far country. And they deceived Joshua because everything that they had, their bread was moldy, their shoes were worn, their saddlebags were torn, their Water bottles, which would be made out of animal skins, they were patched and such. So everything of their appearance showed. And Joshua makes this covenant. He was deceived. We so easily can be also deceived. But if we know the word of God, we're not going to be tossed to and fro when the enemy comes or the false doctrines. Notice verse 15. But speaking the truth in love. You may grow up in all things into him who is the head. The head is Christ, obviously. And so listen to what Paul is saying in verse 15. We will hold to the truth in love. The truth of Christ in agape love. Becoming more and more in every way like Christ. I want to be more like Jesus. I hope you want to be more like Jesus. Who is the head of the church. 
Now, it's important that we desire strong doctrine. It's important that we desire the truth of God. And it is important that I desire to be more like Christ. I don't know about you, but I like to be around Christians that are Christ-likeness. I like to be around Christians that, you know, are, are reeking the Holy Spirit. I like to be around Christians that know their word. Because when I call on them to pray, I know they're going to pray. When I call upon them for, you know, uh, scripture, I know that they're going to find it. And so it's important to do that. And we, we do that in a process of learning. Now, speaking the truth, speaking the truth is very important. Here in verse 15, but also in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, it's a classical Greek. Speaking the truth in love. To be true, to arrive at truth. And to speak truth. Here's the idea. It's rather of being or walking in truth. Another translation says dealing truthfully in God's word. And so this true love in agape love, divine love, the love of God. And to see that divine love, it's found in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But church, it's important that we see speaking the truth in love, the love of God. Now we come to the conclusion. Look at verse 16. For whom the whole body... He says, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth uh, of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I looked at verse 16, and I usually read several translations, but I looked at the New Living Translation, and it was so it was so clear, and I want to read that to you. Verse 16 out of the New Living Translation. Under Jesus Christ's direction, the whole body, speaks of, of the true church, is fitted together perfectly or framed together as each part in its, its own special work. It helps the other part to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing full in love. We need each other, church. God has given me the place of being called the pastor of the church. We have other pastors. We have other elders, and we have deacons and such. And then we have the church body, but we all have a part. We're not alone. I, I'm not teaching the children. We have people that are doing that. You don't want to hear me play a guitar and sing. We have people that do that, and they're gifted. We have people that pass out the bulletins, people that, you know, just do the work of God. That's the beauty of it. We're all in the body of Christ, different functions. Turn real quick. I want to end here. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14. And Paul here speaks to the church at Corinth concerning the diversity in one body. And it's kind of just bringing it together. What he concludes here in verse 16 in Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. But 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 12. And he's going to use the anatomy as an example. For as the body, and obviously he's speaking about the church body, is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, or whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And here's the conclusion. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And then you keep going there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he speaks about the foot, he speaks about the hand, he speaks about the ear, he speaks about the eye, he speaks about the nose. Now in the anatomy, all those are needed. And obviously, the hand's not going to tell the eye, well, I'm going to do all the seeing for you. No, it doesn't work that way. And the foot, likewise, is not saying, well, listen, I want to be the nose today. No. And so, the beauty of it, we're all part of the body of Christ. Now, I worked in machine shops in Southern California for 16 years. And one of the things a machinist will pride himself, and he'll show you all five on, on, on each hand. In other words, I've got my fingers in my, uh, I'm not going to say toes, thumbs. But you should have seen some of the people. We, we were in a big company that we worked at. We had punch presses. We had all kinds of various machinery. We had huge grinders. And it was nothing to see people walking around like this or like that. And I'm talking about women, too. Every part of our body is needful. And I'll tell you what. Remove your thumb and try to get a glass of water. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so the body of Christ. Praise the Lord. When we walk in here on Sunday morning, this place is ready. We walk in here on Wednesday night, this place is ready. Tomorrow night, the ladies will walk in, and this place will be ready for your fellowship, your breaking of bread, the time of teaching. And by the time we get back on Wednesday, this place will be back set up. That's part of the body of Christ. We all have a function. We all have a call. And so we walk in this newness of life, this manner of life. I walk in God's love. You walk in God's love. We're called to salvation. We're given gifts to the church. There should be no excuse that we should learn the word of God and to build up saints, not to tear down. Not to fleece, but to feed the flock of God. 